Section 4 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Dole. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4 by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 1, Part 3, 16. Still, however, even the good are sometimes affected by this inconsiderate zeal for righteousness, though we shall find that this excessive moroseness is more the result of pride and a false idea of sanctity than genuine sanctity itself and true zeal for it. Accordingly, those who are the most forward and, as it were, leaders in producing revolt from the church, have for the most part no other motive than to display their own superiority by despising all other men. Well and wisely, therefore, does Augustine say, quote, Seeing that pious reason and the mode of ecclesiastical discipline ought specially to regard the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, which the apostle enjoins us to keep by bearing with one another for if we keep it not the application of medicine is not only superfluous but pernicious and therefore proves to be no medicine those bad sons who not from hatred of other men's iniquities but zeal for their own contentions attempt altogether to draw away or at least to divide weak brethren ensnared by the glare of their name, miles swollen with pride, stuffed with petulance, insidiously calumnious and turbulently seditious, use the cloak of a rigorous severity that they may not seem devoid of the light of truth and pervert to sacrilegious schism and purposes of excision those things which are enjoined in the Holy Scriptures due regard being had to sincere love and the unity of peace, to correct a brother's faults by the appliance of a moderate cure. Unquote. To the pious and placid, his advice is mercifully to correct what they can, and to bear patiently with what they cannot correct, in love, lamenting and mourning, until God either reform or correct or at the harvest, root up the tears and scatter the chaff. Let all the godly study to provide themselves with these weapons, lest while they deem themselves strenuous and ardent defenders of righteousness, they revolt from the kingdom of heaven, which is the only kingdom of righteousness. For as God has been pleased that the communion of his church shall be maintained in this external society, anyone who from hatred of the ungodly violates the bond of this society, enters on a downward course in which he incurs great danger of cutting himself off from the communion of saints. Let them reflect that in a numerous body there are several who may escape their notice and yet are truly righteous and innocent in the eyes of the Lord. Let them reflect that of those who seem diseased there are many who are far from taking pleasure or flattering themselves in their faults, and who, ever and anon, 
aroused by a serious fear of the Lord, aspire to greater integrity. Let them reflect that they have no right to pass judgment on a man for one act, since the holiest sometimes make the most grievous fall. Let them reflect that in the ministry of the word and participation of the sacraments, the power to collect the church is too great to be deprived of its efficacy by the fault of some ungodly men. Let them reflect that in estimating the church, divine is of more force than human judgment. 17. Since they also argue that there is good reason for the church being called holy, it is necessary to consider what the holiness is in which it excels, lest by refusing to acknowledge any church save one that is completely perfect, we leave no church at all. It is true indeed, as Paul says, that Christ, quote, loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Unquote. Ephesians 5, 25-27 Nevertheless it is true that the Lord is daily smoothing its wrinkles and wiping away its spots. Hence it follows that its holiness is not yet perfect. Such, then, is the holiness of the church. It makes daily progress, but is not yet perfect. It daily advances, but as yet has not reached the goal, as will elsewhere be more fully explained. Therefore, when the prophets foretell, quote, Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more, unquote. Quote, It shall be called the way of holiness, the unclean shall not pass over it, unquote. Joel 3.17, Isaiah 35.8. Let us not understand it as if no blemish remained in the members of the church, but only that with their whole heart they aspire after holiness and perfect purity, and hence that purity which they have not yet fully attained is by the kindness of God attributed to them. And though the indications of such a kind of holiness existing among men are too rare, we must understand that at no period since the world began has the Lord been without his church, nor ever shall be till the final consummation of all things. For although at the very outset the whole human race was vitiated and corrupted by the sin of Adam, Yet of this kind of polluted mass he always sanctifies some vessels to honour, that no age may be left without experience of his mercy. This he has declared by sure promises, such as the following, quote, I have made a covenant with my chosen, I have sworn unto David my servant, thy seed will I establish for ever, and build up thy throne to all generations. Unquote. Psalm 89, 3 and 4. Quote, the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest for ever. Here will I dwell. Unquote. 
Psalm 132, 13 and 14. Quote, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me for ever. Jeremiah 31, 35, 36. 18. On this head, Christ himself, his apostles, and almost all the prophets, have furnished us with examples. Fearful are the descriptions in which Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Habakkuk, and others deplore the diseases of the church of Jerusalem. In the people, the rulers, and the priests, corruption prevailed to such a degree that Isaiah hesitates not to liken Jerusalem to Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah 1.10 Religion was partly despised, partly adulterated, while in regard to morals, we everywhere meet with accounts of theft, robbery, perfidy, murder, and similar crimes. The prophets, however, did not, therefore, either form new churches for themselves, or erect new altars on which they might have separate sacrifices. But, whatever their countrymen might be, reflecting that the Lord had deposited his word with them, and instituted the ceremonies by which he was then worshipped, they stretched out pure hands to him, though amid the company of the ungodly. Certainly, had they thought that they thereby contracted any pollution, they would have died a hundred deaths sooner than suffer themselves to be dragged thither. Nothing, therefore, prevented them from separating themselves, but a desire of preserving unity. But if the holy prophets felt no obligation to withdraw from the church, on account of the very numerous and heinous crimes, not of one or two individuals, but almost of the whole people, we arrogate too much to ourselves, if we presume forthwith to withdraw from the communion of the church, because the lives of all accord not with our judgment, or even with a Christian profession. 19. Then what kind of age was that of Christ and the apostles? Yet neither could the desperate impiety of the Pharisees, nor the dissolute licentiousness of manners which everywhere prevailed, prevent them from using the same sacred rites with the people, and meeting in one common temple for the public exercises of religion. And why so? But just because they knew that those who joined in these sacred rites with a pure conscience were not at all polluted by the society of the wicked. If any one is little moved by prophets and apostles, let him at least defer to the authority of Christ. Well, therefore, does Cyprian say, quote, Although tears or unclean vessels are seen in the church, that is no reason why we ourselves should withdraw from the church. We must only labor that we may be able to be wheat. We must give our endeavor and strive as far as we can to be vessels of gold or silver. But to break the earthen vessels, belongs to the Lord alone, to whom a rod of iron has been given. 
let no one arrogate to himself what is peculiar to the sun alone, and think himself sufficient to winnow the floor and cleanse the chaff, and separate all the tares by human judgment. What depraved zeal thus assumes to itself is proud obstinacy and sacrilegious presumption. Unquote. Let both points, therefore, be regarded as fixed. First, that there is no excuse for him who spontaneously abandons the external communion of a church in which the word of God is preached and the sacraments are administered. Secondly, that notwithstanding of the faults of a few or of many, there is nothing to prevent us from there duly professing our faith in the ordinances instituted by God, because a pious conscience is not injured by the unworthiness of another, whether he be a pastor or a private individual. And sacred rites are not less pure and salutary to a man who is holy and upright from being at the same time handled by the impure. 20. Their moroseness and pride proceed even to greater lengths. Refusing to acknowledge any church that is not pure from the minutest blemish, they take offence at sound teachers for exhorting believers to make progress, and so teaching them to groan during their whole lives under the burden of sin and flee for pardon. For they pretend that in this way believers are led away from perfection. I admit that we are not to labour feebly or coldly in urging perfection, far less to desist from urging it, but I hold that it is a device of the devil to fill our minds with a confident belief of it while we are yet still in our course. Accordingly, in the creed, forgiveness of sins is appropriately subjoined to belief as to the church, because none obtain forgiveness but those who are citizens and of the household of the church, as we read in the prophet Isaiah 33.24. The first place, therefore, should be given to the building of the heavenly Jerusalem, in which God, afterwards, is pleased to wipe away the iniquity of all who betake themselves to it. I say, however, that the church must first be built, not that there can be any church without forgiveness of sins, but because the Lord has not promised his mercy save in the communion of saints. Therefore, our first entrance into the church and the kingdom of God is by forgiveness of sins, without which we have no covenant nor union with God. For thus he speaks by the prophet, In that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow, and the sword, and the battle, out of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me for ever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies." Unquote. Hosea 2, 18 and 19. We see in what way the Lord reconciles us to himself by his mercy. So in another passage, where he foretells that the people, whom he has scattered in anger, will again be gathered together. Quote, 
I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. Unquote. Jeremiah 33.8 Wherefore, our initiation into the fellowship of the church is by the symbol of ablution, to teach us that we have no admission into the family of God unless by His goodness our impurities are previously washed away. 21. Nor, by remission of sins, does the Lord only once for all elect and admit us into the church, but by the same means He preserves and defends us in it. For what would it avail us to receive a pardon of which we were afterwards to have no use? That the mercy of the Lord would be vain and delusive if only granted once, all the godly can bear witness. For there is none who is not conscious during his whole life of many infirmities which stand in need of divine mercy. And truly it is not without cause that the Lord promises this gift specially to his own household, nor in vain that he orders the same message of reconciliation to be daily delivered to them. Wherefore, as during our whole lives we carry about with us the remains of sin, we could not continue in the church one single moment, were we not sustained by the uninterrupted grace of God in forgiving our sins. On the other hand, the Lord has called his people to eternal salvation, and therefore they ought to consider that pardon for their sins is always ready. Hence, let us surely hold that if we are admitted and engrafted into the body of the church, the forgiveness of sins has been bestowed and is daily bestowed on us in divine liberality through the intervention of Christ's merits and the sanctification of the Spirit. 22. To impart this blessing to us, the keys have been given to the church. Matthew 16.19, Matthew 18.18 For when Christ gave the command to the apostles, and conferred the power of forgiving sins, he not merely intended that they should loose the sins of those who should be converted from impiety to the faith of Christ, but moreover that they should perpetually perform this office among believers. This Paul teaches when he says that the embassy of reconciliation has been committed to the ministers of the church, that they may ever and anon, in the name of Christ, exhort the people to be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, in the communion of saints, our sins are constantly forgiven by the ministry of the church, when presbyters or bishops, to whom the office has been committed, confirm pious consciences in the hope of pardon and forgiveness by the promises of the gospel, and that, as well in public as in private, as the case requires. For there are many who from their infirmity stand in need of special pacification. And Paul declares that he testified of the grace of Christ not only in the public assembly, but from house to house, reminding each individually of the doctrine of salvation. Acts 20, 20-21 Three things are here to be observed. First, whatever be the holiness which the children of God possess, it is always under the condition 
that so long as they dwell in a mortal body, they cannot stand before God without forgiveness of sins. Secondly, this benefit is so peculiar to the church that we cannot enjoy it unless we continue in the communion of the church. Thirdly, it is dispensed to us by the ministers and pastors of the church, either in the preaching of the gospel or the administration of the sacraments, and herein is especially manifested the power of the keys, which the Lord has bestowed on the company of the faithful. Accordingly, let each of us consider it to be his duty to seek forgiveness of sins only where the Lord has placed it. Of the public reconciliation, which relates to discipline, we shall speak at a proper place. 23. But since those frantic spirits of whom I have spoken attempt to rob the church of this the only anchor of salvation, consciences must be more firmly strengthened against this pestilential opinion. The novations in ancient times agitated the churches with this dogma, but in our day, not unlike the novations, are some of the Anabaptists, who have fallen into the same delirious dreams. For they pretend that in baptism the people of God are regenerated to a pure and angelic life, which is not polluted by any carnal defilements. But if a man sin after baptism, they leave him nothing except the inexorable judgment of God. In short, to the sinner who has lapsed after receiving grace, they give no hope of pardon because they admit no other forgiveness of sins save that by which we are first regenerated. But although no falsehood is more clearly refuted by Scripture, yet as these men find means of imposition, as Novatus also of old had very many followers, let us briefly show how much they rave to the destruction both of themselves and others. In the first place, since by the command of our Lord the saints daily repeat this prayer, quote, Forgive us our debts, Matthew 6.12, they confess that they are debtors, nor do they ask in vain, for the Lord has only enjoined them to ask what he will give. Nay, while he has declared that the whole prayer will be heard by his Father, he has sealed this absolution with a peculiar promise. What more do we wish? The Lord requires of His saints confession of sins during their whole lives, and that without ceasing, and promises pardon. How presumptuous, then, to exempt them from sin, or when they have stumbled, to exclude them altogether from grace. Then whom does He enjoin us to pardon seventy and seven times? Is it not our brethren? Matthew 18.22 and why has he so enjoined, but that we may imitate his clemency? He therefore pardons not once or twice only, but as often as, under a sense of our faults, we feel alarmed and sighing call upon him. 24. And to begin, almost with the very first commencement of the church, the patriarchs had been circumcised, admitted to a participation in the covenant, and doubtless instructed by their father's care in righteousness and integrity, when they conspired to commit fratricide. 
The crime was one which the most abandoned robbers would have abominated. At length, softened by the remonstrances of Judah, they sold him. This also was intolerable cruelty. Simeon and Levi took a nefarious revenge on the sons of Sychem, one too condemned by the judgment of their father. Reuben, with execrable lust, defiled his father's bed. Judah, when seeking to commit whoredom, sinned against the law of nature with his daughter-in-law. But so far are they from being expunged from the chosen people, that they are rather raised to be its heads. What moreover of David, when on the throne of righteousness, with what iniquity did he make way for blind lust by the shedding of innocent blood? He had already been regenerated, and as one of the regenerated received distinguished approbation from the Lord. But he perpetrated a crime at which even the Gentiles would have been horrified, and yet obtained pardon. And not to dwell on special examples, all the promises of divine mercy extant in the law and the prophets are so many proofs that the Lord is ready to forgive the offences of his people. For why does Moses promise a future period when the people who had fallen into rebellion should return to the Lord? Quote, then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. Unquote. Deuteronomy 30 verse 3. 25. But I am unwilling to begin an enumeration which never could be finished. The prophetical books are filled with similar promises, offering mercy to a people covered with innumerable transgressions. What crime is more heinous than rebellion? It is styled divorce between God and the church, and yet by his goodness it is surmounted. They say, quote, if a man put away his wife, and she go from him, and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return again unto me, saith the Lord. Unquote. Quote, return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord and I will not keep anger for ever. Unquote. Jeremiah 3, 1, 12. And surely he could not have a different feeling who declares, quote, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. Unquote. Quote, Wherefore turn yourselves and live ye. Unquote. Ezekiel 18.23.32 Accordingly, when Solomon dedicated the temple, one of the uses for which it was destined was that prayers offered up for the pardon of sins might there be heard. Quote, if they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captive into the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whither they were carried captives, and repent, and make supplication unto thee, in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned, 
and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness, and so return unto thee with all their heart and with all their soul, in the land of their enemies which led them away captive, and pray unto thee towards their land which thou gavest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou their prayer, and their supplication in heaven thy dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee, and all the transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee. Unquote. 1 Kings 8, 46-50 Nor in vain, in the law, did God ordain a daily sacrifice for sins. Had he not foreseen that his people were constantly to labor under the disease of sin, he never would have appointed these remedies. 26. Did the advent of Christ, by which the fullness of grace was displayed, deprive believers of this privilege of supplicating for the pardon of their sins? If they offended against the Lord, were they not to obtain any mercy? What were it but to say that Christ came not for the salvation, but for the destruction of his people? If the divine indulgence in pardoning sin, which was constantly provided for to the saints under the Old Testament, is now declared to have been taken away? But if we give credit to the Scriptures, when distinctly proclaiming that in Christ alone the grace and loving kindness of the Lord have appeared, the riches of His mercy have been poured out, reconciliation between God and man accomplished. Titus 2.11 Titus 3, four, 2 Timothy 1.9 and 10. Let us not doubt that the clemency of our Heavenly Father, instead of being cut off or curtailed, is in much greater exuberance. Nor are proofs of this wanting. Peter, who had heard our Saviour declare that he who did not confess his name before men would be denied before the angels of God, denied him thrice in one night and not without execration. Yet he is not denied pardon. Mark 8.38 Those who live disorderly among the Thessalonians, though chastised, are still invited to repentance. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 Not even is Simon Magus thrown into despair. He is rather told to hope, since Peter invites him to have recourse to prayer. Acts 8.22 27. What shall we say to the fact that occasionally whole churches have been implicated in the grossest sins, and yet Paul, instead of giving them over to destruction, rather mercifully extricated them? The defection of the Galatians was no trivial fault. The Corinthians were still less excusable, the iniquities prevailing among them being more numerous and not less heinous. Yet neither are excluded from the mercy of the Lord. Nay, the very persons who had sinned above others in uncleanness and fornication are expressly invited to repentance. The covenant of the Lord remains, and ever will remain, inviolable. That covenant which he solemnly ratified with Christ, the true Solomon, and his members, in these words, quote, If his children forsake my law, and walk not in my judgments, 
If they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with a rod, and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him. Psalm 89, 30-33 In short, by the very arrangement of the creed, we are reminded that forgiveness of sins always resides in the church of Christ. For, after the church is, as it were, constituted, forgiveness of sins is subjoined. 28. Some persons, who have somewhat more discernment, seeing that the dogma of Novatus is so clearly refuted in Scripture, do not make every fault unpardonable, but that voluntary transgression of the law, into which a man falls knowingly and willingly. Those who speak thus allow pardon to those sins only that have been committed through ignorance. But since the Lord has in the law ordered some sacrifices to be offered in expiation of the voluntary sins of believers and others to redeem sins of ignorance, Leviticus 4, how perverse is it to concede no expiation to a voluntary sin? I hold nothing to be more plain than that the one sacrifice of Christ avails to remit the voluntary sins of believers, the Lord having attested this by carnal sacrifices as emblems. Then how is David, who was so well instructed in the law, to be excused by ignorance? Did David, who was daily punishing it in others, not know how heinous a crime, murder, and adultery was? Did the patriarchs deem fratricide a lawful act? Had the Corinthians made so little proficiency as to imagine that God was pleased with lasciviousness, impurity, whoredom, hatred, and strife? Was Peter, after being so carefully warned, ignorant how heinous it was to forswear his master? Therefore let us, not by our malice, shut the door against the divine mercy when so benignly manifested. 29. I am not unaware that by the sins which are daily forgiven to believers, ancient writers have understood the lighter errors which creep in through the infirmity of the flesh, while they thought that the formal repentance which was then exacted for more heinous crimes was no more to be repeated than baptism. This opinion is not to be viewed as if they wished to plunge those into despair who had fallen from their first repentance, or to extenuate those errors as if they were of no account before God. For they knew that the saints often stumble through unbelief, that superfluous oaths occasionally escape them, that they sometimes boil with anger, nay, break out into open invectives, and labor besides under other evils which are in no slight degree offensive to the Lord. But they so called them to distinguish them from public crimes, which came under the cognizance of the church and produced much scandal. The great difficulty they had in pardoning those who had done something that called for ecclesiastical animadversion was not because they thought it difficult to obtain pardon from the Lord, but by this severity, they wished to deter others from rushing precipitately into crimes which by their demerit 
would alienate them from the communion of the church. Still, the word of the Lord, which here ought to be our only rule, certainly prescribes greater moderation, since it teaches that the rigor of discipline must not be stretched so far as to overwhelm with grief the individual for whose benefit it should specially be designed. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 7 As we have above discoursed at greater length. End of section 4